morning. Welcome to Regeneration. We are in the book of Luke. And as you are turning there or already there, let me just pray for us. God, we ask that you teach us how to pray. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. We invite you here um, to fill our minds and our hearts with the things of you. We pray that you would equip us to love one another fully and to love you fully and for those that are outside of our doors that we would have compassion on them as well in Jesus name amen so I taught on the Lord's Prayer a couple of years ago it was just a one sermon uh, overview of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew's gospel and what I'd like to do this time around is go into more depth uh, with Luke's account of of this prayer and and it I'm actually going to take several weeks to unpack it. So we're not going to go through all four verses. Actually, the, the furthest that we're probably going to get today is Father. Um, so, um, and, and the reason why I kind of want to take time to go into this prayer into more depth is because last week we talked about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and how important it was just, just to sit and to listen to Jesus and, and I kind of want to go, go along with that thought. And I, I think it's important for us to listen to Jesus. And one of the primary, primary ways to do that is through prayer. Now, how many of you know this prayer by memory? Almost everyone, right? And how many of you knew this prayer before you were a Christian? Isn't that interesting? Right? And, and I remember saying this prayer before all of our sporting events, right? before we went off to competition. And, I, and this was in high school. I didn't go to a Christian high school. But for some reason, we would always say this prayer before our football games, before our wrestling meets. We would always say this prayer. And there was a lot of guys on the team who were not Christians. But, you know, we, we'd, after a while, they'd, they'd kind of join us in on this prayer. They'd memorize it. And um, it just kind of became a tradition. It just became like a habit and a routine that this is what we just did. And while this is an amazing prayer, it's often said without any purpose or without any meaning behind it, whether it be some high school sports team or whether it may be even us when we just kind of say it from rote memory and we don't kind of internalize what, it, what, it's, what it's meaning, what, it, what we're saying. And we just kind of sim- simply say it and sometimes we don't live out what the prayer teaches even though we memorize it. We can recite it. And that's not to say that tradition, routine, or habit, those things are, are bad or wrong. They're important. Because I think to some extent, those things are very helpful in our spiritual lives and in our spiritual disciplines. And to incorporate those things, I think that's going to be a great thing. And I'll go into that a little bit later. But let's just jump right into what we're going to cover today. Verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father. That's, that's as much as we'll go into today. And I'd like to now start out with some observations of, of just the text. And the first observation is that it seems that Jesus was doing something traditional. He was doing something routine. He was doing something habitual. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now prayer was something that was 
solidly established in the life of Jesus. Jesus' prayer life was something of habit, of routine, of tradition. And sometimes we look at those things in a negative light, but that's not always the case. There are times when habit, routine, tradition, that those things are good things, especially when we can do them thoughtfully, purposefully, meaningfully. A couple of months ago, I, I went to go deep sea fishing for a friend's bachelor party. And before we set off, uh, uh, the guy uh, who captained the boat, he went through his safety routine, right? It was a habit to go through this routine. And he's telling us, you know, where the life jackets are, where the life ring is, where the, the life hook is. And, and then we set off. And then we, when we're out far enough, he starts putting out the lines for, for the trolling. And he puts the bait on them. And he puts the hooks on them. And, and he was doing this. He was just kind of doing his routine. He was doing his habit. And then things got really choppy. Right? And so the, the boat's just swaying back and forth like this. And you know, these, these arms go out of the boat. And they said, when it gets really bad is when those arms touch the water. And so the boat's like this, right? When it touches the water. He said, that's when it gets really bad. So when you guys are just kind of going like this, you know, you're about 10 feet away from the water. It's not that bad. But I was feeling it. This was bad for me. And so one of the guys, he just starts throwing up. 15 minutes into, he was a guy from Minnesota. So I don't think they have the deep sea fishing stuff happening out there. Maybe lake. And so he's, he's just throwing up. And we barely started. This is a several hour fishing expedition. This guy's just dry heaving after a couple more minutes. And, and so he's keeled over the whole time in the back of the boat, just bent over that way. And I feel so bad for him. Really bad for him. And while some of us are, are, are we were kind of nervous ourselves, you know, it's kind of getting rough. And we were wondering, are we going to get sick too? Because, you know, this guy, this guy's looking really bad. He's sweating. He just looks terrible. But this is just routine for the captain. This is routine for him. How people get sick there, how he was preparing everybody, how he put the lines out. So this other habit that he had was he carries carbonated drinks. So he had these carbonated drinks that, that not only helped himself with seasickness, but it helps other people, you know, if you just sip a little bit of 7-Up or ginger ale or something like that. And so he also had waters. He had waters for people uh, like this guy who needed to rinse his mouth out after going all over the place. And he also had paper towels around that, you know, you're wondering, like, why does he have a roll of paper towels on a boat right there? I mean, it's, it's going to get wet. Well, it's for guys like this. It's all habit. He's all planned out. He's, he's prepared. He knows all this stuff, right? And so he, he was like a good friend taking care of you after you throw up, you know? So ladies, here's a clue for looking for a good man. Is if he'll take care of you when you throw up. You know, when, when all that gross stuff comes out like this. And, you know, I have three girls, so I have a vested interest in trivial things like this. But... A good sign is that they will come and they will take care of you. They don't get grossed out by this stuff. They have the water ready for you to rinse. They hold your hair back. They have something for you to wipe your mouth with. That's a really good sign of a good boyfriend. And eventually, maybe a husband. So guys, you know, keep that in your file. Keep that in your file. I have plenty more where that came from. You know, there's this... But this is routine stuff, right? This is routine stuff the captain had prepared for possible things that, that he, he's faced before. He knows this stuff, and the routine allows him to be prepared for things. If someone fell off 
off of the boat. He's ready for it. If someone throws up, he's ready for it. We want to catch fish. He's ready for it. And so this is like Jesus, right? where his prayer life is a habitual thing. It's a routine thing. The routine of prayer was how he was so well prepared to face whatever came his way. Whatever came his way. You look back at Luke chapter 4, verses 20, uh, 42 through 43. This is what Luke records for us. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. How was Jesus able to know so clearly what he needed to do and not be tempted by a successful ministry to stay there? How many of us can do this? If we started some church, if we planted some church and it just started booming, and we automatically think, oh, this must be the Lord's will, it's being blessed, we're adding and stuff like this. But how did Jesus not fall into that temptation to know that, yeah, I have a really successful ministry, but that's not what God wants me to do? Prayer. He got that insight from prayer. And Mark gives us a more detailed account of what happened there. It's in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And this is what Mark wrote in his gospel account. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. That's how he did it. And sometimes we're looking at these external factors of our successful ministries and how many people we have do this or that or, or what we're doing on the outside when, when that's not what God's really after. We're about God's will. So as we pray about these things, even though they're great things, Jesus was like, that's not my purpose. That's not why I came. And he was able to focus on that. See, he had this regular meeting with God. He had this regular meeting with God, his Father, to guide his paths, to guide his decisions for discernment. And then in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke writes to us, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. See, he was able to stay true to his call because he habitually met with God. It was routine to meet with God. It was kind of like your regular staff meetings at work. Right, you, you would, you're, you're meeting there, you're meeting with your boss to find out, all right, what's your vision, how do I implement this? And even though some things are going really well in the company, but if that's kind of taking us away from that thing, then that's not, where we're, that's not the direction we're going. I need, to, I need to come back in line here with what we're up to. How did he choose the 12 disciples? Right? Prayer. You turn back to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And it says this, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. See, he asked God the Father for the picking of that twelve out of this larger group of disciples. Then he chose the twelve out of them. And I, and I have a feeling that he was there all night because when God said, um, choose Peter, he was like, really? Really? And, and, you know, all these different guys, all these 12 guys, he's like, what? Wow. Not, wow, that's incredible. You only mean to choose those guys. All right. And you can only receive that revelation that's so counter to what you would feel as someone being qualified if you're listening to God. For him to give you the insight as to who those guys are. Who would choose to start 
a powerful movement of the Spirit, fishermen, tax collectors. Who would choose guys like that? You would choose people that kind of, okay, who do we have that gives us good organizational skills? Who do we have that can get some good marketing out there and get the word out? Who do we have that's a great speaker and can teach and can do? Who do we have that, that can, can do really great music and, and draw people in with that? You would choose people like that, but God is not looking for things. Jesus was not looking for things like that. Jesus prayed to God and just said, whoever it is. Right? And out of all those disciples, he chose those 12. And we kind of wonder sometimes, how did that happen? And it was through prayer. An all-night prayer. And how did he not fall into temptation? It was prayer. Luke chapter 22, verses 40 through 41. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we find Jesus praying. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And no doubt the disciples saw the power of prayer. They, they saw the power of Jesus' prayers. And it only took them 11 chapters to figure this out, right? Like, hmm, maybe, maybe we should ask him to teach us how to pray. Maybe we should do that. So, verse 1, he says, And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So, one of the disciples finally gets a clue. And he asks him. And here's another observation. That there was a request to learn how to pray. And it's a pretty simple observation. Yet, how many of us struggle with our prayer life? And this could be a really great question for us to ask God. To teach us how to pray. Because how many of us are seeking guidance on prayer? Is there anything more important to our relationship with God than prayer? Any single thing that's more important than this? And yet it's such a simple, simple thing. Yet it's so difficult to establish this kind of richness of a a rich prayer life in our life. It's so difficult, isn't it? It is really hard. Now, how many of you don't need any more prayer? Anybody? Like, you're, you're, you're done. Right? You're full of it. You can't possibly use any more. Right? That, that God, if I pray one more word, I'm going to blow up in my holiness. Like, how many of you are like that? Right? And, 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 and we can all use more prayer. Every one of us. And we're so good at so many things. We're good at our jobs, we're good at our, our relationships, we're good at being parents, we're good at uh, being a spouse, we're good at so many things, we're good at getting knowledge, we're good at learning, we're good at doing things, we're good at, at serving. How many of us find ourselves really, really good at prayer? That you're, you're really good at this. And I find that I have a lot of distractions in my life. I have a ton of distractions. When I study... When, when I'm in a counseling session, when I serve in ministry, when I'm giving pastoral care, when I'm preaching, when I'm doing whatever. But the, fi- the times that I find that I'm most distracted is in prayer. That's when I find myself most distracted. And a lot of those times, it's not even outside distractions. It's an internal distraction. I'll, I'll just be praying And minutes later, I'm thinking about something totally different, and I had no idea how I got there. Anybody happen? That happened to anybody? 
You know, you're so intent, like, oh, Lord, I'm going to pray for this. And, and you're praying, you're praying, and praying. And then you're thinking about a burrito. Like, <laughs> like, what? I was just praying about fasting. And so, and so sometimes I find myself doing all this talking, too. And I'm just talking to God. I'm talking to God. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And yet I'm the one doing all the talking. And so I'm my own internal distraction from listening to God because I'm just chatting, blah, 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 blah. I have all these things. So it's not always other things that are distracting me. I do a pretty good job of it myself. I don't even need other things to distract me from prayer. So sometimes, you know, doing all this talking, and, and yet I wouldn't do that to any other relationship in my life. Like go to my kids and all I do is I talk with them. Or go to my wife and all I do is I talk. I never listen. Or, or my friends. Or in a, past, in a pastoral care situation or a counseling situation where I'm just talking, talking, talking. I wouldn't do that in any other relationship. But yet I do that in prayer sometimes. I'm just talking to God. And I'm not listening to Him. But here Jesus is saying, but when you do say something to God, when you, when you are going to say, Jesus gives us this good model here of what to say. And He said to them, when you pray... Meaning that it's kind of assumed that you are. When you. It doesn't say if you pray. When you pray, say. So like I said, we're going to take several weeks, if not a couple months, to, to kind of go through this model of prayer that Jesus is going through. And before we get into, into that, let, let's unpack what the disciples were asking of Jesus. When the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, what did they mean by that? Because I think we can gather a lot from that. And actually it's what he meant, because it was asked from a singular person. But it, it kind of makes me question what the disciples were precisely asking for. Were, was this disciple asking for precise words? Like, give me the exact words to say. Or what, what was he asking? What what? You know, was he t- asking for a template and, and just kind of an outline? Was he asking Jesus for a class? What, what, is, what is he asking for? So what we see following the questions, uh, the question are Jesus' words of what to say. It says, when you pray, say. Which tells me that this is something for us to say. For us to actually come out of our mouth. And now this is different from Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. In Matthew's account, it says, pray then like this. It's not as straightforward as Luke's to say, when you pray, say. So now, I, I, I don't think that these teachings are contradicting one another. Right? They, you know, some people are probably looking for them. See, the Bible contradicts each other. One says like and one says say. I don't think that this contradicts one another. So what I do think is that Jesus gave this critical teaching on prayer. This is so critical. Prayer. That he gave this teaching on prayer numerous times. Multiple times. And so these are just simply two different accounts of lessons on prayer. So in one case, when Luke's recording it, he's saying, when you pray, say. So Luke records that. And in Matthew's account, he's saying, Pray like this. So Matthew records that. And so they're just different accounts. And it makes sense to me that Jesus would teach this important subject multiple times. You think he just taught about prayer once? That's it? 
Out of his whole life, out of his whole discipleship of these guys for three years, he only mentioned teaching on prayer one time? I don't think so. I don't think so. So in Luke, it was a request from a disciple. A disciple had this question for him. And while in Matthew, it was a teaching that, that came as a response to how the Pharisees were praying. Right? If, you leave, if, if you read Matthew's account, that's how that came. Luke's account came from a question from a disciple. They're two different kind of scenarios, I think. So the teachings of the prayer are similar, but they're not exactly the same because the situations that they derived from were different. So we know that prayer was of utmost importance to Jesus and that he teaches us to pray. So I think he teaches us multiple times in multiple areas, numerous times in the Gospels of how to pray. So how are we doing with this? How are we doing this? In a worship service like this, we worship in song, we worship in, in giving, we worship in the study of God's Word, we, we partake in communion. How about prayer? How are we doing with that? Because we have prayer before the service, and I think it's part of the church service. And, and, and so I invite you to come. Before the 9 o'clock service, we meet at 8.30. And we usually meet in this back room because we usually don't have that many people show up for it. And there's only about seven seats in there. I'm hoping that we can move into the chapel where where we can have 30 people in there. And that we would pray for the service. We would pray for the people that come here. That we would pray for God's sensitivity of His Spirit to identify people that, that need need us to show that we we care for them, that we value them, that we want to pray for them, that we want to be a listening ear to them, that we would prepare to to serve people in Jesus' name. And then our evening service, our evening service is at 6, and our meeting's at 5.30, and it's the same thing. Prayer meeting's at 5.30, it's back there. It's only seven seats. I'd love for us to move into the chapel and to fill that chapel up with people to pray. So I'd like us to come into the mindset that prayer is part of our worship service. That yeah, we might have it say 9 o'clock and we might have it say 6 o'clock, but what about 5.30 and 8.30? Where we show up and we can intercede for people of our church, where we can seek God's direction, and and that's part of our worship service. And we we also have prayer during the week, right? Um, on, On Wednesday mornings. At 6.45, we meet at the cafe. It would be awesome, because we usually have about a dozen people, that we would have to move out of the cafe and come into the sanctuary for our prayer. That we could, that we could intercede for people during this time, and we can pray for them. That it's just part of our worship. And so there's different times of prayer. We, we have it after the service as well, during that second worship set after the sermon, that you can pray to the Lord and ask Him how, how He's ministering to you and what, what He wants to speak to you. And so use that time to pray. You know, prayer is just so critical. And we talk about it, but how often do we kind of implement it into our own lives? And I hope to see some of you at the, the prayer before the service. That, that would be just great for us to migrate from this back little back prayer room to a larger room because we just can't fit back there. That, that would be really awesome. Verse 2, and it says, And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father. Now, we might get some debate about the term Father here. 
right? That, that there's this argument that the gospel was written from a patriarchal society point of view. So that's why it's written father. And I do believe that living in a patriarchal society has caused some damage in various societies and cultures. I'm not denying that. I know that has happened. But I don't believe that we can interchange father with mother here. I don't think that works here. See, Jesus was always one to stand up for the oppressed. No one can ever accuse him that he did not. He stood up for women. He stood up for Anyone oppressed, the unclean tax collectors, lepers, prostitutes, people who weren't acceptable, people who were looked down upon. What makes us think that he wouldn't say father, mother, or mother, or parent to buck the patriarchal society if that is what he was really intended on doing? Because he put it in the face of the Pharisees all the time. He called them out on their stuff all the time. The religious folk, he called them out on it all the time. What makes us think that he would be any different on this kind of gender role? Because Jesus is about truth. He's about truth. And if that is what is true, he would have said it. He wouldn't have cared about what those guys had to say. Right? He, he, called, he called Herod a fox. So he doesn't, he's, he doesn't care. He would have said it. But here he says, Father. He says, Father. I just wouldn't mess with what is revealed to us in the Bible, which stands forever to fit this ever-changing value of our culture, this ever-changing value of our society. I just wouldn't switch things like that so easily. And maybe the ones who mess with what the Bible reveals intend for us not to accept the authority of the Bible or, for, or, or the God-inspired words of it. And it's clear that the Bible consistently designates the first person of the Trinity as Father. Let's humbly recognize that. Maybe we don't understand all of it, but it's there. And I think Jesus and God are forthright enough to say, mother or parent or anything else, if they meant that. Because he does. The title of mother has a place as well. It's used by God as well. And God describes His relationship with His people usually in the term of mother. Right? Isaiah chapter 66, verses 12 through 13. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees." As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. See, God has attributes of both motherhood and fatherhood. So let's not mess with how God intends to describe himself in whatever case he brings forth. Right? How much do the verses change in Isaiah 66 if we insert father? That would be weird. That would be weird. You shall nurse. That's weird. Right? So God, God's revelation to us in the Bible, it's perfect. And it's clear that God is not sexist. He's used both motherhood and fatherhood pictures to describe himself. Maybe people are, maybe they're insecure about how God really is, but God's not. So let's not make the word of God a sexist issue. It's not. Because God makes Himself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does not mean He looks down on femininity. 
does not mean he looks down on women. You look at Isaiah 66. He's using that to describe his motherhood attributes. And in reading the Gospel of Luke, you can see how much women are valued. You can see that in a time when women's testimonies are not accepted in court, they are thrown out. What is the Gospel of Luke? It is a testimony of Jesus. And who's speaking in there? A whole slew of women. A lot of them. I should have counted. But there's a lot. There's like a dozen Marys at least. Right? They're they're there. Now when Jesus addressed God as Father, who was He telling to use that title? Who's He talking to? The disciple asked the question. He is addressing His disciples. Right? He's addressing His disciples. The ones who have placed faith in Him, in Jesus Christ. See, God is not the Father of everyone. And this might rub some of you the wrong way. This might play with your theological minds a little bit. But it's true. God is not everyone's Father. For those who kind of just see God as a Creator, I can see how you think that God is like this Father-type figure because you're thinking about just creation, that a Father is just to create something. But all of us know that if we've had bad fathers or absent father, we know that that's not fatherhood. That's just biological. The Bible does not typically use God the Father and God the Creator synonymously. Those are different things. The title of Father for God is reserved for His children. The reserve for his children, those who have accepted him through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the term reserved for his children. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, God is not the Father of all people. He's the father of his spiritual children. Those who have accepted by faith Jesus Christ for the atonement of their sins. Not everyone is a child of God. See, I have friends and I have relatives who believe that God is the father of all. That whatever they believe and, and, and all this stuff, based on their reasoning, all religions lead to the same place because God's the Father of all. So it really doesn't matter that Jesus died for our sins because the, the road for this guy is the same for the road for this guy is the same for me. It all leads to the same place because God is the Father of all. Not true. That is false. Jesus' redemption for us on the cross needs to be accepted to be a child of God. And it's not this idea that because everyone is a child of God, everyone's entitled to go to heaven. And some of my family and my friends believe that. Some of them also believe that because they've gone through some sort of Christian ritual, that they're a child of God. Right? Is that true according to the Bible? If you are baptized as a baby, does it say in the Bible that you are saved? If you take communion, does that say you are saved? If you do any other type of sacrament in the Bible, is it biblical to say that you are saved? Let me read to you John chapter 8. 
And it, it, it's, it's kind of lengthy. It's about uh, 20 verses here that I'm going to read through. It's going to be 37 through 55. But this is about Jesus um, getting into a scuffle with, with these Jews about God being their father because they said, Abraham's our father, therefore God's our father. And this is what Jesus has to say. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Two different fathers. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. It's kind of a slam because they don't know where Mary was from. They're kind of digging at Jesus. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Another dig. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not see my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm. <laughs> Being a father or a child of Abraham doesn't mean that we're a child of God. Right? And these guys were sons of the devil. See, we're not all sons of God. We're not all children of God. These are sons of the devil. And I'm sure these guys prayed to God as their father, but he really wasn't their father. 
And how many of you are praying to God, addressing Him as Father, yet you don't know the reality of God really being your Father? That you can fall into line with like these Pharisees. That your Father is actually the devil. And there are so many who know this prayer, and, and, they, and this prayer starts out with Father. But how many of us who say that really know the reality of God being our Father? And yet this is how he starts it. He addresses God as Father. And if the life doesn't line up with what is being said, is God really their Father? That's what he's telling them in John 8. It's not lining up, guys. Looks like your dad's somebody else. See, it's easy to say Father. It's easy to say it. It's another thing to know the truth behind that declaration. That that is really true. And how many people do you know call God their Father without Jesus in their life? That is an impossibility. Impossible. You look back at John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. See, it's an impossibility to know God without Jesus. That's impossible. And God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. Anyone who tells you different is a liar and from the devil. There's no other way to God but through Jesus. That's the only way. I can't lie to you about this. I don't want to say that. I'm from the Bay Area. I want to be accepting. I really do. I want to make it like, oh, everyone goes in. Yeah, we're all cool. See you there. Peace. But this is in the Bible. I can't tell you anything different. I'd be a liar. God is the Father who believed in... it is the Father to those who believe in faith that Jesus died for their sins. That is who He is Father to. And those who don't receive Jesus, God is not their Father. It's just that simple. So the question is for you, is God really your Father? Have you accepted Jesus into your life? To redeem you from your sins, to atone you from your sins. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verses 23-26, through 26, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." We are all sinners. Every one of us. Have you accepted Jesus? The only one who can cleanse you from those sins. The only one who can bridge that gap between you and God the Father. No one else can do that for you. You cannot do anything about it. There's no act that you can do to gain that, to earn that. Being baptized as a baby doesn't make you a child of God. Taking communion having family that were Christians, your dad was a pastor, your grandfather's a pastor, whatever, all your, your lineage. These guys are saying, we're from Abraham. And, and, God, and Jesus is saying, your dad's the devil. 
See, all those different beliefs that we have that we're saved, those aren't biblical. Those are man-made things. Only Jesus gives us passage to become a child of God. Only when we're born again. John chapter 1, verses 11-14. through 14. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do our prayers lack power? Perhaps it is so because God being your Father isn't a reality. God truly being your Father and more than just a word that is uttered from our mouths. And not that God can't hear you prior to being a child of His. God can hear you. He does hear you. That repentance, God hears it. That desire to, by faith to accept Jesus into your life, God hears that prayer. But before we get any further into asking God for things or interceding for people, pray about realizing God as your Father in reality, in being, not just in title. That you have a relationship with Jesus, that you know Jesus, and from that you have a relationship with God the Father. You cannot call God the Father without a relationship to Jesus. And I think this is fundamental for us to understand that the first utterance from Jesus' mouth on what to say when we pray, Father, is an acknowledgement to say like, you need me. You need me to intercede for you that God is your Father. Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we like to say that. But what's the converse of that? Because the converse of that is true too. That there is condemnation for those who are without Christ Jesus. Jesus justifies the sinner who has accepted what he did for him or her. Jesus justifies those who were once condemned. Jesus stands in our place before a holy God. See, we're not born holy. We're born sinners. And Jesus makes it possible that we're presented holy. We're presented, presented righteous. That we are adopted as His children. We are not by nature born into that. See, I have three children that call me dad. I have other kids that call me dad too. But, but we haven't gone through the formal adoption process yet. Uh, I have to talk to my wife about that. But, see, we get, we get these letters from kids that we sponsored for years and years and years. And, and, and when I get those letters, they all address me as dad. And they all address my, my wife as mom. So, and so, you know, we, we have these titles. But these are utterances. These aren't realities of being. You see the difference? See, the three kids that live in my house, I'm their dad. It is not just an utterance of their lips. It is not just a title. It is a reality. They don't call anyone else dad. 
And these three kids have something with me that no other child in the entire planet has. Yet, unless I adopt others. Because I can do that. Right? And, and, and once we adopt, the child that we adopt gets everything that my three have. Which in earthly sense is not much. But they do get everything that I have for them. Right? So, so whatever I pro- provide my three children after adoption, the adopted child gets the same thing. Everything. And this is what Jesus does for us. This is what He did for us. He's God's only Son. But we can all be adopted. And we can all inherit the same blessings that Jesus Himself has from God the Father. He makes adoption possible for us so that God can lavish us with everything that comes with being a child of God. And he cleanses us from our sins. He wipes out any debts that we had. We're accepted into his family. We're adopted into his family. A family that we were not part of by nature. We were born sinners. So that's his grace. So is God your father? You know, last week was Father's Day. And I kind of wondered about the timing of everything, but last week's message was kind of uncanny with what God was doing in my life. I find this interesting too in that this didn't fall on Father's Day as a Father's Day message, but it's the week right after. And I think that's helpful because it, it, it helps us look back at Father's Day and, and see what we missed. And I think this is going to be a lot more applicable now because it's a week later. But last week was Father's Day and sadly, some of us have experienced bad fatherhood or no fatherhood. I'm included in that. I'm just like one of you guys that have experienced that. And I've dealt with that. I've grieved what I've lost in my, my infant years, my, my childhood years, my teenage years, my ad- a young adult life years. And I've grieved about that. I've processed through that. I've, I've overcome that with God. I've overcome that. And I have a good relationship with my earthly dad now. Right? The, for those of you who are here when my babies got dedicated, my dad dedicated all three of my children here. We have a great relationship now. But I did come from that place where there was a lot of disappointment, a lot of confusion, a lot of hurt, and a lot of pain because of my relationship with my dad. Or lack of one. And when looking back at my past with my earthly father, there was a lot of anger There was a lot of bitterness. There was a lot of resentment. And perhaps the memories of your relationship with your earthly father are like that. That they are unhappy. That they are sad. That they are upsetting. That they are frustrating. That that maybe they are even disturbing. You know what? I'm really sorry for that. I understand that. Not exactly what you're going through, because what you're going through is different. But I I get it. And some of you have gone through some terrible things with your earthly father. And I'm sorry for that. And I understand that it may make it difficult for you to relate to God as father, because your human relationship with your father, or your lack of a relationship with your father, kind of taints that. 
And if you're in that camp like me, I was there. I want you to look at it from another direction. And what I mean is that to look at fatherhood towards God and not towards your earthly father. That when it says father, you're not looking at your earthly father. When it says father, you're looking at your spiritual father. And you look straight to him. Sometimes we let the perspective of humanity dictate how we see things spiritually when humanity is all jacked up. You can't look at it through the eyes of humanity. It's messed up. And in this case, let's look at fatherhood from a spiritual perspective. From God's perspective. So that what we've experienced from our earthly dads doesn't taint how our Heavenly Father loves us. And if you haven't experienced love from your dad, you have an amazing opportunity to let God love you as a father. And he can do this. He did this for me. It's possible. I know he can do this because he did it for me. And while your earthly fathers, they might have conditions in loving you, your heavenly father loves you unconditionally. There are no conditions. And while your earthly father knows nothing about you, he doesn't know anything that you stand for. He doesn't know what you value. He doesn't know what you're passionate about. Your heavenly father knows everything about you and he loves you just as you are. Just as you are. Is God your father through faith in Jesus Christ this morning? Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Father. Now there are some of you who have been blessed with great relationships with your fathers. And I'm pretty sure you're in the minority. It's sad to say, but I think it's true. And I know you're out there, that you have a great relationship with your father. And there are some of us who didn't have good relationships with our fathers, and God has reconciled those relationships, or, or we've been able to grieve them in healthy ways, and we've been able to move forward. And I want to take a little bit of time to talk to you guys for a bit, and gals. I want to ask you a question. May you share that, that experience, that history of you with people who don't have a dad or, or have bad relationships with their dads? Can you share that? And may you prayerfully consider being in somebody's life to help play that role. You don't have to be a man to play that role. You just need to be available. Especially in regards to the youth in our neighborhood. Especially. I was part of an Oakland pastors meeting with Mayor Kwan this past week where she shared that only 30% of the black teenage boys graduate from Oakland Unified School District. 30%. 3 out of 10 graduate. 7 out of 10 do not. 7 out of 10. That's crazy. I shared that the murder rate in Oakland was in the high 30s last week. My, resource, my, my sources are outdated. It's actually 59. 59. We're not even into July yet. 
most of them black and Latino with some Southeast Asian. Most of them young men. Almost all. Most of them happening on Friday night and Saturday night. Can you please pray about being in some young person's life? Especially on a Friday night? Especially on a Saturday night? Many of them don't have fathers. Many of them have fathers that aren't there. I've met many who are raised by grandma or auntie. Mom and dad aren't even there. And for those of you who work in Oakland in various roles, whether teaching or support or something, I see your heads nodding. You know this to be true. I don't have any hard statistics in front of me that tells me how many of these deaths are young adults. I don't think I have to. I think one is too many. I don't have to tell you that 40 out of 59. Isn't one enough? And I don't have any hard statistics in front of me to share with you how many of them don't have fathers present or fathers checked out. All I know is that there are too many. That in this neighborhood, when I'm out, there, there are just a lot of kids in this neighborhood, this one right here, with incarcerated fathers. With abusive fathers, with absent fathers, and, and those who have their dads physically, but they're not fully present with them. There are many of them here in our neighborhood. And sadly, they're in the majority. It's not a minority group that is experiencing this. Most of them are like this. There are some that have good fathers present there, and they're, they're right there with them, and they're fully present, but those are a minority. So please prayerfully considering mentoring one of the youth in our neighborhood. Again, you don't have to be a guy. In fact, it works better if, that, you know, if, if you're a woman to hook up with a young lady in our neighborhood. It, it'd be better that way. Right? And, and the men of our church to hook up with the young men in our neighborhood, the youth and the, and the, and the young kids, the young boys in our neighborhood, to hook up with them, to, to mentor them. Prayerfully consider this. Right? The kids and the youth need someone to be there for them. How about you? How about you? Mary Kwan shared that she has this goal of 2,000 mentors uh, to, to, to impact Oakland this year. 2,000. Do you know how many churches there are in Oakland? There are over 700 churches. 700. If each one of us just gave three kids a mentor, we hit that goal. And it's not that, oh, let's get behind the Mayor Kwan bandwagon. I think she has something there, though. That what these kids need is someone to be in their life and to love them and then show them Father. That that opens up an opportunity for them to accept God into their life because they have a healthier perspective of what that is because right now they don't. So when you're saying like, when you're praying God Father for them, it's like, big deal. My pictures of that is terrible. Right, so... Prayerfully consider this. And you don't have to have a great relationship with your father to do this. You, you, 
All you need to be is available. Available to a younger person to, to be there for them. You don't have to give them great wisdom. You don't have to give them experiences and money. What you, you just need to give them your time. That's it. Just your time. See, we have a martial arts ministry here at Region for the kids and the, and the youth in our community. And, and some of the kids there I've gotten pretty close to because we've been doing this for over five years and some of these kids have been there for over five years. And so some of these kids have shared with me that I spend more time with them than their dads do. I only teach them three hours a week. I'm there for them more than their dads are. And some of these kids have shared with me that they know that I love them. I've never said that to them. But they've said that to me. And, and that they can actually talk to me. That they can't talk to their parents. And, and even though I'm really hard on them at practice, and I push them, but they know I'm proud of them. That their father hasn't given them a high five and said, good job. That their father hasn't cracked a smile and said, like, that was great. That was good. That I, their father hasn't ruffled their head. May you please prayerfully consider investing a half hour a week. An hour a week. A week. A half hour into a young person in the neighborhood. And, and if the Lord leads you to do that, please be in prayer about that. Don't just do it out of your flesh. If you do it out of your flesh, you might say something stupid to a kid. You might do something stupid. Pray about it. Be led by the Spirit to do it. And if He tells you to do it, do it. Do it. And, and, and please get in touch with me, or please get in touch with Christina Chen, our children's director. And our, our emails are on our website. Or you can call the church line and leave us a voicemail. We'll get it. Or you can just show up to our practices on Tuesday and Thursday nights at 5.30. And Hannon, who's wearing that hat right there. Hannon, can you hold your hand up? Hannon. He's been mentoring several of our students and even the non-students. Just kids that come because they're siblings in the class. This is how kind of widespread it is. You know, they don't want to be a part of the class, but they have siblings just sitting around. He's been, he's been with them. He's been with them, meeting with them for several months already. And he'll be able to kind of show you the ropes of what's going on. He's been able, I don't want to share you the details of what happened this past week because I want to keep that confidential. But Hannon has such an instrument of intercession between parents and their children and having them understand. He's been putting on these parenting workshops because that's what he does for the San Francisco Unified School District. And he's been doing this and he's been able to build these relationships with these kids and, and these parents that something really difficult happened this past week and who did they go to? They went to Hannon. They didn't go to their school teacher. They didn't go to um, somebody else. They went to their mentor. And this is the kind of thing that we, we can be a part of to give, give the youth and the kids a, a greater glimpse of Father. Please be in prayer about this. And when you pray, say, Father. Father.